Welcome to Crossroads, a podcast that explores the intersection of faith and Christian living. Crossroads is part of the media ministry at Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City. Get to know us by visiting us online at fapc.org. Hi, I'm Jamie Staley, Director of Christian Education at Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church. And I am here today with the Reverend Dr. Jason Santos, who is the minister at Community Presbyterian Church in Lake City, Colorado. Uh, An interesting small town of about 400 people at an elevation of 8,700 feet. Uh, Apparently, as Jason just told me a little bit earlier, in the most remote county in the contiguous United States. That is correct, right there, Jason? That's correct. (laughs) I'm just impressed with you used the word contiguous. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Uh, I do love dictionary words. Um, Jason also is a founder of the Theology of Play conference, convention. Not yet. I can't remember the third one. We're at the conference level. You're at the conference level. All right. Um, And is an avid board game player as well as board game maker. Oh. Maybe not board game, game maker. Is, that, is it a board? Are there boards? I think the term we use is designer. We, we but I would say a hobby. <laughs> I'm a hobby designist. I've done a few. I've, I've done a few small publications through the denomination, but other than that, you know, I got to know Jason a couple years ago when he was at the national office, um, and I know he, as he just mentioned, he's done a few things uh, through uh, PCUSA designing games, and today. Uh, I just want to talk a little bit about the theology of play. I feel like over the last year and a half, uh, we haven't been very playful in our lives. There's been a lot of downers, a lot of things going on in the world and in our lives. Um, And I just want to spend this fall uh, talking about some fun things. So we're going to start off uh, with play um, and then continue on in the next few months uh, talking about some other fun things. So, Jason, um, my first question for you is what is the theology of play. I, I hadn't heard that before um, Before I met you. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Before I say that, I do want to say that you mentioned that over the last year and a half through COVID time that there hasn't been much play. And I would actually say that that's for non-gamers oh. because there's <laughs> been a giant boom within the board game. I mean, we're in kind of a gaming mm. renaissance right now, and we can come back to that later. But uh, within the gaming world, the challenge of initially not being able to be together, but uh, there was a huge boom online in what's called a tabletop simulator, which is they basically replicate board games that are in a in, an, a, in a physical space onto a digital platform, and then people just manipulate the items as if they would if the board were there. Uh, so, in, as as a consequence, there were these greater connections that have happened in in those who already are preconditioned towards this idea of play. Uh, so, the question that you asked, though, is what is a theology of play? Well, uh, a theology of anything would just uh, sort of ask the question, how does X intersect with religious phenomenon related to, and in our case, the Christian faith? Uh, so, how does the concept of play um, play out in, in theology? And, and you know, when you look through scripture, I would, I would think it'd be safe to say that most of it doesn't describe a lot of play. Um, it's pretty serious in nature, yeah. you know. Uh, the relationship between God and Israel through the Old Testament was not um, was not peppered with moments of frolicking. Uh, um, <laughs> uh, although I do like to argue, and I will argue in a moment, um, that the, the the in the garden 
there was a frolicking that that walking mm. in the in the garden in the cool of the evening was not just a casual stroll uh, into the sunset as much as it was a playful uh, frolicking in a garden and in a paradise that God created to play in. Uh, mm. Play as a whole as a category. I think before you can get to a theology of play, you have to sort of ask what it is philosophically. And I think the the idea of play in our modern day times as often. Um, uh, has certain things around it. There are limits to play. So if you play an instrument, you only have so many octaves on, on, on what you do. There's, a, there's boundaries. And if you play a game, there's boundaries. If you, um, if you uh, play with a certain type of, of paint or in an artistic medium, and there's that spirit there, you're limiting yourself by an artistic medium. And you, sometimes there's self-set boundaries. But play as a whole gets into this category of um, what if? What if we do something? Um, what if this were real? So sometimes we play make-believe or we, um, or we play uh, a sport. Um, and we play as if we were, if we were professionals, or if if, if this really mattered. And so, uh, when you play a board game in that moment, nothing. It really doesn't make a difference whether you you get to your ten points and build, you settle your island before other people. Uh, you're playing as if you were doing something that mattered. And so, in the spirit of play, it captures this idea of it being in the moment, but what you're doing in the moment isn't of a grand consequence. Uh, play is often described as something that is internal rather than external. Uh, so when you play an instrument, when you play a sport, you're doing it for the love, for the interest, for the activity in that moment. And yes, we have obviously people get bent out of shape when sport teams lose, and so do probably competitive players. The point of, I guess, in saying that is that within the game, there is meaning. Within play, internally, there is value. Uh, not an external one. So when you go to work, uh, you may engage in moments of play, but you're going to work because it's your job and the utilitarian end of that is you're going to get paid and that payment allows you to have a house or an apartment or food and a car. And so you're doing the thing you're doing with an external goal that hinges on, uh, you know, that, that, that the whole thing is hinged on. Because if you weren't being paid, then... Uh, you might still do some of those things in a volunteer capacity, but it wouldn't look the same. And, and, and the same thing is true for, for play. Uh, you're not playing a game because down the road it's going to matter. Uh, what happens in a game, if I were to play one right now, by the time, you know, even if I lost and I was mad at it, in, in a couple hours, you're beyond that point, and you're like, okay, it doesn't really matter. But in the moment it does. So there's an internal value. Now let me put this in a biblical sense, just to sort of put it, since I know this is a, a you know, for the for the <laughs> Christian educator context or the Christian church yes. context. Um, Mary and Martha are often, you know, are you Mary or you Martha? And I think it's a horrible mm -hmm. false dichotomy. But uh, but in that example, I'll use it anyway, since everyone else does. Uh, <laughs> Martha had a goal. We got to get something done. We want the house to be good. We want the house to be perfect. We want the, we want, the, you know, we need to care for this master who's here. Mary wants to sit with Jesus and just dwell. So you could say Mary embraced a spirit of play in design and designing or desiring to sit down with, with Jesus and just be present. Now it doesn't tap quite, quite fully into that sense of playfulness, but in the sense of the value was in the, the pausing the stopping 
and and there wasn't like, hey, if I sit and do this later, that that next week it'll all accomplish this, or at the end of the day, I'll have done other than that, other than then I'm in that present moment. Um, and I think that we can put that in in terms of uh, even in worship, how much of our worship is about the internal. Um, generativity of what happens when we gather together as as followers of Christ and we proclaim God's glory together and we confess what we believe together and we're encouraged together. Uh, I've been in churches where they da- down to the second, they're like, okay, you have two minutes and 42 seconds to read this passage and we know that's all long that it's going to take because we tested it three times and that's the average. <laughs> so you need to fit it into that time frame and we don't want you to, because at the end of it, making sure they hit their cues and making sure the sound was good and the lights were great. And, and, and yes, I appreciate professional worship, but at the same time, that's a performative external value that they're seeking to accomplish rather than saying, who cares if, if the lights are perfect? It doesn't make a difference. We're here to worship. We're here to gather. We're here to be the church. And that's its internal. And I think that that taps into a dynamic of play. I don't think it actually is the playful spirit. Um, so all this to say, those are facets of play. Now, how does that relate? And, and, and I'm sort of setting up the stage. I think to understand, uh, the theology of play is not something that has been teased out too much in the church. Um, there are a few resources that, that really tap into it. Uh, the, uh, Jürgen Moltmann wrote something called A Theology of Play, and it's like $400 on, uh, on Amazon, or I mean, on, on any booksellers. But uh, a theology of joy, which is this condensed version or the essence of what's in the theology of play, is actually um, much more accessible. It's very thin. But in the theology of joy, Moltmann hits the nail on the head. And that says, basically, we were created to be creatures of joy. Mm. And so and in all of my Sabbath research for today and other things that I've done, I, uh, I have a, I've spent a lot of time in the doctrine of creation. So I started pondering this and I thought... Okay, if, if we're created to have this sense of joy, that would have been instilled in us in our pre-fallen state using, you know, still orthodox theology and, and whether that you think those are actual people or, or metaf- you know, metaphors for people, I don't really care. The idea is, is that when we, you know, you have sort of, in order to accept Jesus as being the savior of the world, you have to accept some notion of a fall that we were in this non, you know, we were in, and that there is some return. And for the Jewish context, paradise was the embodiment of what the Sabbath is meant to be. You know, Sabbath, uh, for the, for the uh, Jewish rabbi, Abraham Joshua Heschel, he says Sabbath is a reminder of what we lost in the fall and a foretaste of what we'll uh, have in the, our afterlife. And so in Sabbath, we have this almost perfected place. And so you have to sort of imagine it as being a place of perfected joy. And when God instilled us with God's image, uh, in, with their image, and I think that's important to have that plurality of God in there. It says, let us, let us uh, make humankind in our image. Um, uh, when we talk about God's image uh, throughout the history of the church, 2,000 years, you get things like uh, rationality is one of the strongest ones. That, well, that's what differentiates uh, us from the beast, brute beast of the world in, in Calvin's language. Uh, the, the rationality or um, uh, a sense of uh, relationality, uh, a sense of self-awareness, a sense of creativity we create in ways that, uh, that, that reflect God's image. Um, and all of these, and, and, and there's a, and, uh, probably a half a dozen other ones that, that sort of surface to the top of this, uh, but all of these facets that we're talking about that were given to us in the Imago Dei, 
This is what we say. And then we say, okay, well, the fall came and then these things are damaged. We have less capacity. We have a smaller percentage of our brain. Uh, uh, but in a pre-fallen state, these capacities are in their, you know, in, in some sense of, of full functioning. And the use of them conceivably would give us a great sense of joy. And that sense of joy in a playful frolicking. Now, here's the exciting thing about that. If these facets of the Imago Dei are actually... Uh, reflective of the actual Imago Dei in us, and I think that they, they probably do reflect that to some extent. Um, when you think of what happens, and for me, I, I'm a board gamer, so when I sit down to some board games, I am using creativity. I'm using rationality. I'm using logic. I'm using self-awareness and how I relate with others. I'm relating, engaging in a unique relationality. Um, I hang expressing tremendous creativity and innovation and trying to strategically mix things up to, to, to engage in this. And all of these facets that we have historically described as being part of the Imago Dei are brought to life in, in an act of play. I don't think every act of play, I mean, you play an instrument, I think there's all sorts of those things that tap into that. Um, uh, and capacities that tap into that. And, you know, and, and playing a sport, you probably did drift off, but again, there are multiple ways we define play within the larger category of sociology or, or philosophy. But in terms of the Imago Dei, now here's the thing. So if all of those parts of the Imago Dei are enlightened and enlivened as you're playing a board game, how many are enlivened and enlightened when we're in worship? Mm. Hmm. That is an interesting question. <laughs> that was a dramatic pause. I wasn't trying to like leave space for editing. Uh, <laughs> well, and, and I'll fill in the answer for you because I've thought a lot about this, uh, and not mm. to say that I haven't thought ex exhaustively about it. So I'm sure, <laughs> but uh, not many. Mm. And that doesn't, and that doesn't mean if you're in the exception of that, and you do have this, you know, and tap into those things in a unique way, that's great. But I think the rule would more likely be you come in as a passive sitter, you sit down facing one direction. You, you know, you kind of struggle to sing through hymns or maybe if you have one you like, you know, like there's not, a, there's not, you're not, there's no creativity there. There's not innovation there. There's not, uh, there, the relationality is low. It's more mm -hmm. vertical between you and God or even maybe between you and the staff or the minister or those leading. Uh, maybe the passing of the peace mixes that up, but that usually is awkward for, awkward for most folks anyways. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, the sermon maybe engages you intellectually and taps into some of that logic and that's designed to deliver that in that way. But really, when you think about what happens in a worship service, our, ult, you know, our ultimate gathering, our central uh, place of identification for who we are as the body of Christ, it, it is so lackluster when it comes to facets that we claim are, are part of the Imago Dei. We don't tap mm. into those. But I do in a board game. And honestly, mm -hmm. I, and that's why, you know, you, you, people think you play board games, you know, so I, 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 you know, I've been leading board games for a year and a half online and, and we, I, I run a, and, I, and that carries on now into an in-person game. We start games at seven on Monday nights and we'll play sometimes till 11 at, and, the, and then on, and then on Friday, wow. more advanced gamers just meet in the church and we just bring random games and we've had, you know, and we're getting in a town of 400, we're getting 14, 15, 16 people coming out because, wow. because they're, and not be, because they're, 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 they experience joy when they sit down and embrace games. Mm -hmm. Gaming is a huge piece uh, of our culture that is largely still within a subculture. Mm -hmm. And in fact, most of the games that we as Americans have grown up with are, are, are crappy. Uh, I think board gaming, 
and this is a, this would all segue myself. I think board gaming is essential to uh, who we are as humanity, not just playing. I think play as a whole category is important, and we need to play. And in particular, in times of pandemic or in times of challenge, uh, how do you play? You know, how do you engage in play when Rome is burning? Well, in play, you recover what God intended for us in the Imago Dei. And so it's a moment of recovery of what we lost in the fall, and it's a, in an encounter when it's done well. I mean, obviously, if you hate a person when you're done, and you want to flip the board. That's not, you know, that, that, that's tapping into your fleshly sign here. But but it usually only happens in Monopoly, yeah, though. So. It is, I know. And then, you know what? And honestly, I think everyone deserves the everyone in their life deserves the opportunity to flip on the Monopoly board. I think that's like a rite of passage. Um, Fantastic. So there, there was a comedian on, I don't, uh, on uh, a while back that talked about. Uh, Monopoly and it was like he was like I'm playing Monopoly with my daughters and the one was so you know crying she just got out and he said you know like sweetheart that you know I, I, I'm, I'm gonna take everything that you have now and you, you can't play anymore you have to go you have to, you're not even allowed to play with us anymore you just have to sit and watch but I'm gonna take everything that you've worked over the last two and a half hours and, I, and so I'm just gonna sad. it's all daddy's um, and 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 I'm going to use it to crush your sister or something. <laughs> <laughs> that's so and it's sad. Just, it is, but that's what it is, and that's what you know. What American we you know those in the gaming world where they say merit you know it's kind of a merit trash, and 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 that really refers to probably games that that have come out over the last you know fifty years prior to modern born gaming in the U.S. is is has been phenomenal. Um, mm. But prior to, to sort of party games, Pictionary mm. and group games and Boulder Dash and Taboo, those are all a whole separate category that's, that are wonderful in their own right, but, but are very different in gaming experience than sitting down with, with a, you know, three other, four other friends. Yeah, uh, yeah. But segueing into that is, is that uh, I think that we need gaming in the church. Uh, I think that the recovery of the spirit of play that's in the Imago Day is necessary. I think churches should have game nights. I think they should. I think they should be game library. So, uh, so when I came here, uh, I, I took my close to five hundred game library and I turned and I it was it was to the point where I had too many games and I was like I shouldn't really have more than one. <laughs> I was going to say five hundred seems like a lot. Yeah, but you. Have, I bet you have more than five hundred books. Maybe. Yeah, there you go. See, you can't you can't see on the podcast, but the sheepish look she, that Jamie just gave me. <laughs> Um, but here's the thing. I wanted to raise my, I have a son who's 20 and a son who's nine. And, and I got really heavily into gaming when my son, older son was like three or four, or started to get into gaming when my son was three or four. And as it grew, he played games. But my youngest son, I determined to make an experiment. And since he was able to roll dice, I had him in his hand. And I have hmm. exposed him intentionally to all sorts of different mechanics and types of games. Um, and he's nine, and he he plays. And this isn't that he's a genius or anything, but he plays games that are for 15, 16 year olds. Not because he's a genius, but because he's played games <laughs> his whole life, and he understands how games work. But every single time he sits down to a new game, he has a new set of rules. He has a new objective. He has new ways of engaging with the people across the table from him. He has new things to manipulate or to uh, have to figure out how they fit together in the best way or the most yeah. strategic way to, to do it quickly and on the fly. And yeah. that activity uh, is wonderful anytime you engage in a, a game. 
But when you have a library of games that you can tap into, and every single time you sit down to a new game, your mind has to sort of wrap itself around in this new concept. That's problem solving. It's innovative thinking. It's, it's synopses in your brain connecting all over the place because you're trying to figure out how to solve a puzzle, you know, a puzzle that you've never done. And sometimes they're spatial, sometimes they're logical, sometimes they're deductive, sometimes they're word games, sometimes they're, you know, uh, drawing game. you know, you're connecting, you know, all sorts of ways that there are a bunch of mechanics that you can use to do these things. But when you think about the benefits that they have for a child growing up, always engaging in new thought, new activity, the learning at a very young age to think, which is what we as a, we as a culture have not taught our children to do. It's too passive, it's too screen-oriented. It's too uh, um, just sort of uh, osmosis, just receive whatever is giving to you. Um, and I would say the other end of the spectrum, too, one of my passions and one of the things, uh, I hope to actually write this up in the next three years, all this theology of play stuff, but um, one of the things that, that, um, that in years to come, I actually would like to, to, um, to seek out a grant uh, to explore the role of board gaming in adult living communities or adult retirement communities. And I think that if you took a cognitive test, uh, um, an intellectual and emotional and relational test of a cohort of adults around the world in various adult living communities, and then and then made, and then they participated in a gaming group for one year, and you, and they you know curated certain games that they were playing in to stimulate different parts of their brain. I guarantee you, after a year, that they're not only going to have greater intellectual uh, stimulation and test higher on their cognitive tests. They're also going to test higher on their emotional and relational tests because they have been in relationship with people for the last year uh, in real and meaningful and joyful ways. And so all that's to say, just to bring this to sort of where I'm headed with this is on the spectrums of that are both great because it, it, the older folks need it because their brains are deteriorating. And if they don't use them, it just ends up atrophying. Uh, I remember an article many, many moons ago about a, a, a convent of sisters who just when uh, when they died they did autopsies on their brains um, and apparently their brains were just like you know gray matter was was off the charts for their age and they asked the one of those still in the community like what what was happening why was this occurring and the short of it was is every year they tried a new they tried to do a new thing uh, learn a new hobby learn a new task and so they were constantly wrapping their head around something new. Older people, younger people need this development. And in the middle, we do too, uh, because we are in the middle are often working and we're the ones who are, you know, sort of um, trying to keep the, the, the society functioning. We're not in retirement and we're not in uh, formation in terms of education anymore. So we're, the, we're the, 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 you know, the middle of society. We need those moments where we have respite from that, the, the, you know, the, I said midlife is hard because you get up in the morning and you go until 10 at night and then you're exhausted and you just want to, you know, have a beer and, uh, and watch a show on Netflix or something. Uh, but um, I think that board games provide us real engagement and joy and um, stimulation in a way that sitting in front of a TV doesn't. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, and obviously reading is different. I mean, that, that's a great unwinding. I'm not doubting that or saying that, that, that games are the ultimate. All that's to say is each generation, there's all sorts of benefits. And if you go into them physically, emotionally, um, and I would say even spiritually in the sense of tapping into that, that, that sense of play. But what I want to say in this is this. Gaming is also 
or board gaming in particular, um, is one of the few aspects in our culture where um, where we truly have an intergeneration or, or or really have an inter you know expression of intergenerational intersection. And what I mean by that is, um, in my uh, other part of my world of life, uh, I I uh, participate in the intergenerational uh, Christian formation conversation, and. Um, and from and when those two worlds in my own head have collided, what I what I discovered, and really it was sitting down playing a game called Dinosaur Tea Party, which is a better That's version fun. of Guess Who, uh, if you will. Mm. I mean, it's a lot better version of it. It's actually fun. Uh, but um, I was playing it. My at the time, I think my seven year old son was playing it. My mom, who was seventy one, and my you know teenager who was at the time maybe seventeen or something like that. Uh, but we're all playing this game, and, and, and I mean, it was like 45 or something like that. But we're all playing this game, all different ages, and no one had any real advantage over the other. You know, we're naming characteristics, and we want to know, we're trying to deduce whether the dinosaur has teeth or, you know, no teeth or is holding a <laughs> teacup or eating cake or whatever it is. We're asking these deductive yes. questions. And it dawned on me that my seven-year-old son had just as much opportunity to win the game as I did. Mm. And just as much power to you know to to win the game as my mom did. So intergenerationality deals with the concepts of mutuality and reciprocity. Um, it's inherent to the conversation that when we have intergenerational intersection, there's a sense of mutuality. We're both we're both receiving and engaging in faith formation in some way. We're mutual mutually beneficial or mutually not beneficial even would be fine. But there's a mutuality and reciprocity. There's still give and take. It doesn't have to be equity perfectly, but there's a give and take happening. And I think in a game where a seven year old can beat a forty five year old or a seventy year old or a seventeen year old is empowering, not even in a sense of they need to be empowered, but in the sense of equal footing. There are instances and places where this happens, but but I think the engagement and tapping into this sort of spirit of play in, that is given to us in the Imago Day, in the act mm-hmm. of a game, is is just one of those quintessential places where we find intergenerational intersection in a way that we don't find it many other places. Why are games and this theology of play and this idea of um, the Imago Dei, why is this important to our church today? Uh, well, I think in part, uh, let, me, let me address, I don't know how many points I have, so I'll get there when I get there. But uh, I think in part in a COVID time, it's proving, uh, as, as we ha- and I think you hit it on the, the, the nose, a lot of people weren't playing in this last year, or if they do, uh, they've often privatized their games because they're playing them on their phones. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we play, we spend a lot of time in the spirit of play kind of doing, and it looks like my, you know, and there's all sorts of research done that actually it's good for your brain to some extent to play these small little challenges and throughout the day and mm-hmm. revisit them. And, but, uh, but in general, uh, the, the, the act of playing together is something that in, the, in a COVID era we have done less of, unless we were already conditioned towards that or had, you know, already sort of in that, in, in the, you know, in the, in the industry. Um, but I think in the church we need play because sometimes we don't have a third thing that, um, that, that's not uh, outward oriented that allows us mm. to intersect. Um, I think that if you put a board game, you can bring a group of people together and you give them a thing that they can bond over or a thing that they can meet one another. It takes some of the edge off. I think, you know, we forget that in our churches, the reason people get uh, concerned about 
uh, uh, passing of the peace is because they don't want to turn around and have to say hello to someone they know that they should know their name, but they don't. Yes. And it's that embarrassing moment of feeling like, you know, I, do I really know these people? Do we really intersect with them? And the challenge too is, is that, you know, what, is, so, so how, you know, the only other medium we have really to get to know people in church often is having them over for dinner. And then it's just a lot mm. of small chit chat. And even then it's forced conversation, chit chat. And if you're an extrovert and that's your thing, that's fine. But for introverts in particular, it can be overwhelming. So my question for you, as we kind of wind down, um, people who are listening to this, may or may not play board games already, may or may not have at ways to do intergenerational things, uh, you know, with with groups out, out at the moment because of COVID. Um, but h- how would you encourage people to to spark this play aspect in their own lives? Uh, I, I'm going to have to default to to board games. Um, I, <laughs> okay. Well, you know, here's the thing is I think I think we can do things more intentionally. Uh, I think if you understand play as sort of tapping into those facets of the Imago Day, and you and and you know, I think you play an instrument and you get lost in it. I mm. think you can have that spirit of play of just it's just music, and you're just you know. I think in sports too. I think mm. you know Michael Jordan was playing. He mm. and we got to witness one of the greatest basketball players in the world because he in that moment. Yeah, it was he winning and the fame and all that went into it. But I, don't, I think at the end of the day, Michael, someone recently shared a stat with me that said one of the unknown f- f- uh, stats about Michael Jordan is the um, – I, I, I may be wrong on the numbers, but I believe it was 88 games in a season. Mm-hmm. And I guess of all of even the current basketball players that since Michael Jordan's time, they said how many seasons they played in their professional careers where they played all 88 games. Wow. And Michael Jordan has the highest by like far. He's like nine, eight or nine seasons. He never missed a game. Wow. And he didn't miss a game because he wanted to, because he would make more money if he was at them. Maybe he would. Maybe he gets paid by contract probably. But, you know, so, but my point in saying that is when he went to play, he embraced a spirit of play. It was in the boundaries of a court with the rules of the game he had he had mastered this skill and he was when he played and it was a beautiful thing to witness and watch because it was magic happening but that's the spirit of play and so i think when we do things well when we engage regardless of whether it's a board game or or you know having coffee with a friend or i think there's a the spirit of play can be there because you're not thinking about what is down the road or what do i have to do after or uh it, you know is this meeting going to accomplish something and working with the church and getting something you know it just being with someone in that moment and embracing that spirit um, of that internal value taps into that mm-hmm. spirit of play but i do think board i mean i think churches you know I, i've worked with many churches to start board games uh, uh libraries and and nights um if you want uh, more on the spirit of play it's uh, in, i don't remember the name i think it's called engaging the generations the second intergenerate book is he's called engaging the generations edited by Corey mm-hmm. seibel uh, i have a couple chapters in that and the first mm-hmm. one, uh, the, the chapter one deals with Sabbath and sort of intergenerationality as a new ecclesiology uh, and one that embraces, you know, intergenerational formation. Uh, and, and that expression then leads itself to, I don't know, it's in the teens, there's another chapter in there that deals with playing and games mm-hmm. in particular. Um, and it doesn't give it go into the full, full theology of play that I just shared here, but it goes into why board games 
are important for Christian formation and intergenerational Christian formation in particular, some of the benefits that come from that. And at the end of that, I list, I don't know, maybe, uh, you know, 20 or so games in various age categories that I think that are great introductory games that engage both adults and youth and children in play if they're in the brackets and the age brackets that they're listed in. Some of them are higher and some of them are younger. Uh, but if you wanted more on the theology play, I would encourage the uh, Engaging the Generations book in that chapter. Uh, and it has the information in it. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Jason. Um, I, I think, I hope that this fall, the topics that we talk about play. Uh, next month, we're going to be looking at the Marvel Universe and where we find God there. Um, I hope this brings some encouragement and some joy uh, to people as we move through this we're still in COVID times. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah. and thank you everybody for joining us today. Uh, and I hope you'll join us next month as well. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Crossroads. Managing editor, Jamie Staley. And editors, Vashina Brisbane, Kelly Picayo, and Emily Dombrough.